on the next episode of Talking Thrones, a special spinoff of the Talking TV podcast channel. We talk about episode four of season one of Game of Thrones entitled Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things. Tyrion has a little run-in with Bran. Ned begins some investigating. Daenerys begins to find out that she's not as weak as she previously thought. And Catelyn gains a major victory by the end. As certain more mysteries are revealed. Pat, do you have anything to say before we get started on this one? Uh, just enjoy talking TV. I'm going to, you know, not touch the jokes here because I don't want to be insensitive. <laughs> you know, this is a, a, a loaded title. <laughs> the, the, the title does it for itself, indeed. All of this and more on tonight's episode of Talking Thrones. Pat, we're here four weeks in episode four, season one. We're almost to the halfway point of season one, as these seasons are only ten episodes in uh, in their title. So, like, I don't know, like, kind of walk me through your your mental state right now. Like, how are you so far on this kind of retread through Game of Thrones territory? Is it fortuitous? Are you learning more? Are you starting to like get bored? Like, walk me through your mindset here. <laughs> Dom, uh, I I will say that I am enjoying the world more you know, all the lore. And this is mainly because you keep uh, telling me about it. And it's like, oh, I, I must have missed a lot of this yeah. <laughs> either watching well, that's it. What or... I mean. That's the beauty of it. Because again, like people who watch the show will only get a certain amount because there was only a certain amount, honestly, that the show was able to divulge without it feeling like exposition material, right? But then you have the rich text of the books, which just helps flesh out so much more material that you're like, Jesus, they could have given 20 episodes each to this show just in order to give it like just that much more rich back subtext and back and backstory that's how much there is that goes into the show just lore wise yeah i think the show and this is where we're you know early on in the show so basically we're getting all the exposition and some of the episodes are not as exciting as i would ho you know hope they would be but that's because the excitement comes a little bit later i'm not saying that these episodes aren't bad it's just the first couple episodes, you have to have a lot of things set up, and sometimes it's not exactly the most exciting, uh, you know, delivery. Yes, to say the least. Unfortunately, Game of Thrones is a very methodical pace to it. It is the one that really kind of set the show and allowed it to start to have the record that it did. And we're going to be covering all of that and more on tonight's episode. Episode 4 of Season 1, entitled Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things, directed by Brian Kirk, the second of the three episodes that he directed for Season 1 and written. This is the first episode written by a series mainstay, Brian Cogman. Brian Cogman was a writer who was the only other credited writer besides David Benioff and D.B. Weiss to have written an episode for each of the eight seasons throughout the show. He wrote one episode for Seasons 1, 2, 7, and 8, and Season 3. And he wrote two episodes each for seasons four, five, and six, ultimately. So this being the first episode written by him, like, I don't know. Did you notice any like, difference in the sort of, like, the writing style? Like, was there more of, like, kind of like a TV feel to it as far as that goes? For me, the main thing is basically we got a lot more backstory about the Targaryens. Uh, you know, basically, hey, are you the last of the dragon? That scene with, uh, uh, what is it, uh, 
Viserys. Yeah, I always mix him with, <laughs> with Viserys. Viserys and Berries. <laughs> I, I just Robert, can't wait. Robin. Yeah, I can't Ocean, wait to yeah, I can't wait till the Golden Crown moment happens. Oh, man. And, and, and I'll, that, that's soon, I'll be too. saved. Yeah, I think it's uh, an episode or two away. Yeah, definitely, uh, you know. definitely one of the more satisfying moments to come. Yeah, so uh, basically we find out that, you know, he's uh, paying uh, sort of, I guess, the equivalent of Danny's maid of honor to spy on her. And in this scene, uh, she's in the bath with him and basically, uh, you know, they're getting it on, but they want uh some backstory like oh you are this last dragon you are uh you know from this other realm uh it's almost like the excitement of this foreigner uh is sort of what got her into this situation i'm pretty sure like the money part of it uh helps because uh she's definitely getting benefits in in that department from being a spy but the fact is it's sort of like written into this uh sort of um i guess very you know sexual scene in nature uh that hey i want to know about the dragons i want to know about the history and we actually get a little bit of the background of the last dragons uh that existed before they were killed off yeah it's definitely interesting that obviously this series is kind of in the long line of the build-up to house of the dragon and i think obviously this goes with kind of the title of this episode this episode is entitled cripples bastards and broken things and i think it refers to a handful of characters that we that we meet and continue our journeys with in this episode kind of referring to them both physically and mentally obviously you've got viserys with his fractured mental state you know you've got john with his bastard status you've got bran with his newfound status you've got Tyrion kind of reflecting all this kind of like the elder one uh you know you've got samuel tarley a new introduction in the show you know also and also we're introduced to the first of Robert Baratheon's bastards, who later becomes a mainstay character once again, that being Gendry, you know, uh, Joe Dempsey um, from his uh, post skins appearance, definitely. So there's a lot going on in this episode as far as thematically. And I think that this is the first episode where kind of last week we talked about like how much of like a, a setup episode it was and how like we remember that for having like some fond sentimental moments. But this episode, I feel like is much more so heavy on, like, a focused theme. Like, if there were any episodes that were going to, like, take a break from the humdrum of the main story and, like, introduce kind of, like, some B-plots, take a little sidesteps, you know, as far as, like, continuing the central mystery, that this would be, like, the one, the first episode that I would say has happened so far, like, with this this season. Yeah, for the most part, let's talk about, uh, you know, John and Sam at the wall, right? Because yes. I think this will best illustrate what you're talking about. Uh, Sam comes in, and it's like, you know, clearly they're going with the, you know, plus size character that's a coward and he can't fight. And why is he there? And that's all expressly given to us in the first scene. And for the most part, the uh, uh, what's his name? The the master of arms. Um, uh, Sir Alistair Thorne. Yeah. Thorne is basically like, oh, this is fresh meat. <laughs> We're going to basically beat this guy and make him a man. And he wants the rest of the recruits to join in and basically, um, you know, uh, attack him and, and hit him with the sword and make him uh, pay uh, for sort of how weak he is. And John is like, this is not honorable. Like, this is not how you do it. And uh, sort of throughout the arc of the story, he gets to know Sam more and understand that Sam was put in this position of either you die, you know, because his father wants to uh, fake his death 
um, he's going to murder him and then just sit, tell everybody that he fell off a horse and, and died. Uh, or he can go take the black at the wall. And that's the position that Sam was put in, mainly because he's such a coward that his father never believed that he could run a kingdom. And so uh, that's where, you know, again, a lot of our characters start at the very like rock bottom. But John identifies with Sam. He's going to help him out. He basically uh, intimidates all the other recruits to not attack Sam. Otherwise, they'll get attacked themselves by John. And this culminates in, um, you know, the master at arms basically uh, confronting the two of them and saying, uh, you're never going to last 10 seconds beyond the wall. Yeah. And it's because you're not men. And, you know, you can play these childish games, but, you know, it's it's you have to toughen up. And it's one of those things where it's a complicated situation because, you know, this is how he's taught these recruits in the past how to toughen up. And he's been through uh, the shit. That's the only way I can describe it uh, himself. He tells the story about being six months beyond the wall. And, you know, he needs them to realize that this is no longer, you know, um, lords and um, titles and basically, you know, uh, earning your place. It, it, this is survival. And it takes uh, a harder man to survive beyond the wall. Yes, indeed. Uh, yeah. And if we're kind of continuing with like the plot summary kind of segment of it all, like that's kind of whole John's whole story is him being introduced to Sam and then like them like kind of gradually bringing Sam in as far as, yeah, we're not going to do this. We're not going to hurt him. Uh, despite Alistair Thorne's kind of previous way of thinking, and we're going to make him a brother of the Night's Watch, right? That's kind of one response, right? But we see that idea kind of trickle throughout the rest of the episode, definitely. You know, Ned, obviously, within King's Landing, begins his investigation into the thing that may have caused John Aaron's death. Of course, suspecting foul play, he interrogates Grandmaster Pycelle, who gives him a book based on, um, you know, the lineage of all of the ancient and powerful families of the Seven Kingdoms, along with those last words, the seed is strong. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, that, mean, that, that reminds me. Telling side there. Yeah, that reminds me of a Sean Connery film, um, basically Zardoz. Entrapment. I, oh, Zardoz. No, no, Zardoz. It's it's like an eighties uh, film, oh. uh, but it's a very similar line. If you're a sci-fi buff, you'll you'll know what it, it, it uh, refers to. Okay. But um, for the most part, um, you know, Rick and Morty also did an episode on it. But uh, hey. So uh, for the most part, the the whole idea of Grandmaster Pycelle, you know, hey, here's this book, you know, here's what John was doing. Um, my biggest question for me is why, you know, knowing where, you know, Pycelle's allegiance really ends up right. being it's later, later in the show. Definitely. Yeah. But for right yeah. now, like while they're while his allegiances are pretty ambiguous, it's like, OK, he's still like kind of like a threatening and imposing character. Like he maintains a threat. But like it's definitely a thing where like once kind of like all the curtains are pulled back on him, they kind of pull back the curtain on him first. So he kind of like becomes phased out more and more as time goes on as like being an important character. Yeah. But I always felt like he was with the Lannisters through and through. Like Really? You got that it, sense from the beginning? Well, I guess it's it's just maybe it's, uh, you know, knowing what happens in the future episodes. And that's that's sort of what I wanted to uh, ask you about is like, is he working with the Lannisters at this point or is he oh, generally? With, he has been working with the Lannisters the entire time. But the whole thing is that he, like everyone else, was legitimately shocked by John Aaron's death because of how it was orchestrated by Littlefinger. That's the only thing. Gotcha. So so he, he you're telling me at this scene, he's not connecting the dots 
that basically this book has to do with the reason why John Aaron died. Uh, I'm assuming that he has something that he assumes it's had something to do with it, but he ultimately, it, it, but ultimately he still, he, he can't deny Ned, you know, Ned is the hand of the king of Ned asset. He has to like, give it to him. Obviously he can't like refuse him. That's the thing. So, yeah, but he could have deceived him a lot better than he does he in this episode. But at this point he stands to have, no, he stands nothing to gain right now because the Lannisters are still in the position of taking everything over ultimately. So in his, so in his mind, everything is still in like the Lannister book and that the Starks are only coming in and disrupting something. He's not seeing it as like blatant betrayal or, or at least perceived in that sense because he's, because he just has no like comprehension of it. That's, I guess the difference between somebody like Pycelle versus somebody obviously like Littlefinger or Varys. Definitely. You know, we yeah. see a lot less of Littlefinger in this episode than I guess I initially thought. I think he's in like one scene. Yeah. Um, is he, I, I believe, yeah, I believe he just says something you know? yeah. <laughs> like, uh, if anything at all, but the main thing is, I guess I'm, I'm trying to, you know, since I've seen the show already and I'm revisiting after so many years of seeing these episodes, I'm trying to track, like, are they painting Ned into a corner? Is it very obvious? Like, Hey, we, we want him to go is. on this investigation. We want him to find the bastards because that's just one more piece of evidence that we can put against him uh, on the day that they basically decide to flip the script, so to speak. Yeah, I basically think that it's something that's set up from the beginning. Obviously, we know Littlefinger and Varys specifically, who are like the two people that openly betray him in court. Basically, we know that their motivations are definitely like clouded and muddied, and they're only going to do what like they have to in the moment in order to survive, right? I definitely think that Ned never never really saw a threat from Pycelle. I think that that largely comes from how Tyrion treats him in the subsequent season, but I definitely don't, I, I definitely think that while we're in this time period, Ned is kind of, of, of all the people that Ned has to worry about within King's Landing, Pycelle is the last one. We also get some interesting stuff the rest, the, rest of, the rest of this episode, obviously, as Littlefinger gives him a hint about Sir Hugh of the Vale, who was John Aaron's squire, who was promoted shortly after he died. Ned first attempts to approach him through Jory Castle, but he refuses, saying that he'll only talk to the, to the, to the actual hand. Meanwhile, uh, Ned, also operating off of another tip from Littlefinger, goes to a blacksmith in the middle of the city and interrogates a blacksmith's apprentice named Gendry, who he re realizes upon close examination is Robert Baratheon's bastard, which, of course, plays into this as well, but also serves as a clue as to the later when, when Ned discovers the truth that John Aaron died for, of course, that being the similarity that Robert's bastards pose to him versus what his perceived actual children look like. Um, it's, it's a rather interesting kind of conundrum, especially given Gendry's kind of, you know, fortune that he comes into later on, you know, how Gendry kind of views his heritage, obviously in the show, how that takes him on one path on the books, they seem to be taking him on a different path. Definitely. We're going to be breaking down kind of the idea behind bastards in this episode and kind of what they mean, ultimately what their role is in this story, kind of where they come from. Like we yeah, said before, I, yeah. What were you gonna say? Yeah, bef before we do that, I, I, the one question I, I have is that joust, right? Because this yeah. is—they've been oh, talking about joust. this joust from the whole thing. And uh, you mentioned John Aaron's uh, squire, and he is the character that uh, you know this joust ain't going to be just a, a friendly game, uh, a back and forth. Yeah, it's it's the mountain versus John Aaron's squire, yes. and we end with basically uh, a shard of wood stabbed into the throat of uh john aaron squire yes. and very much dead one of the things that i i now that we're talking about it that i i kind of wish was written into the episode is 
Ned, when he does his investigation and he's starting to look for what John Aaron was looking at, if he did have a personal conversation with the squire and, you know, was told that there was sort of uh, these things that, you know, are suspicious and are not really, uh, you know, can't be really accounted for. If if some of it was sort of given to him from John Aaron's sort of, you know, court uh, or, you know, knights or, or whatever we want to call them. Um, basically that would lead to the joust being a little more important because now he's killed, uh, in battle in, you know, sort of this game. Uh, and that would sort of mean that he was intended to be killed. And I guess there is that mystery that maybe the Lannisters did want to kill the squire, but I don't think that's a major platform. At least that's not the way that they presented it. And I think they could have utilized that to strengthen the story of Ned's investigation. Yeah, definitely. It certainly feels like there are like deliberate elements that kind of come out of nowhere in order to like entrap him. But I will say that like Ned's mystery so far is still the most compelling, I think, storyline of this entire season, especially since like certain other storylines that were like kind of taken into consideration as far as how to jumpstart the mystery ultimately end up kind of becoming not as important as time goes on, unfortunately. So we don't spend that much time in... Uh, so obviously, again, we wrap up King's Landing by also being introduced to the Mountain, Gregor the Mountain Clegane, portrayed in the first of three people who would portray him throughout the show, that being Conan Stevens in this episode. And the next, um, Gregor the Mountain Clegane, obviously famous for shoving his brother Sandor the Hound Clegane's face in a fire when they were kids, as Littlefinger tells Sansa in a story today. Um, so the other major storyline, so Daenerys, obviously, and the crew finally arrive at Vyas Dothrak after a couple of more incidents with Viserys has proven to be just completely unbearable. Daenerys has a very serious sit-down and conversation with Jorah Mormont about whether Viserys would be a good king, and Daenerys really begins to realize just how useless her brother is. Yet another iconic line from Jorah Mormont. It is a line that I've quoted multiple times just in my life and on this podcast in general, which is, the, the common folk always suffer while the High Lords play their games. You know, it's kind of a little bit of a warp on the exact line in the book, but I think it still rings true ultimately. And this is also the moment, Pat, where like you brought up before the moment where Viserys is sleeping with um, one of the handmaidens that he got for Daenerys. And basically is just literally using this moment in order to just exposit like massive amounts of back history about the Targaryens. And I'm like, wow, they were setting up this backdoor pilot, like right from the get go, like right when they yeah. started ultimately. I would say that the, <laughs> the other thing that's key here is the fact that he can't stop like hitting his sister. Yeah, and it's like just can't. it's like it's like a disease at this point. Yeah. But in the previous episode, he basically had a whip around his neck and a guy shouting, do I kill him? Yes or no? Like maybe he should have taken the hint that the tides have turned or like the tables have turned. You know, like uh, it's one of those things where she has to directly like slap him, you know, I think with some chains and say, listen, the next time you touch me you're going to lose those hands. Yeah. And I think that it obviously is setting up for his ultimate destiny. But uh, for the most part, it's like we get to see Danny really climb up out of that hole for the first time and feel empowered. Like, yes, we, we got to see a little bit of that last episode, but this is like, she is finding her place. It's complete. That scene with Jorah that you mentioned, you know, it, it basically, she is going to be a leader. And at this point in the story, she believes it's going to be with her husband, uh, Jason Momoa. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, it, when you when you make it sound like that, it's not the worst choice at all, ultimately. But yeah, he, is, he, do you do you think he could have used his real name instead of a uh, Kyle uh, Drogo? Maybe. I mean, it, it would have made for a completely different show. Ultimately, I felt like it would have been more like a, he would have been like he would have just been like, oh man, you want to be my wife, just like that the whole time, you know, with like his surfer yeah. lingo. A lot more hoorah from the Josh Whedon cut. <laughs> oh, I thought I, I thought it, I, I thought it was I thought it was my man ultimately. Oh yeah, my well, man. Yeah, my man. That's what he said. That's right. Uh, that's, I'm glad those lines got cut. Anyway, that's the type of dialogue that we're talking about here. But yeah, so major two other storylines, obviously, that we have to talk about. Obviously, Bran uh, waking up and being, you know, we meet Hodor for the first time. Obviously, DJ Christian Nairn. Um, who would obviously portray the character for the next five seasons, brings Bran down to the main hall where Tyrion has arrived from Winterfell back from the wall. Um, Tyrion has a very tense one-off with Rob, who still does not trust him, obviously, but Tyrion, managed, but Tyrion successfully gives Bran some plans in order to for them to design a harness that will allow him to ride a horse, ultimately, which is, of course, where he utters the line that is synonymous with the title here. Obviously, I've had a, always had a soft spot for cripples, bastards, and broken things. And then another fantastic line when Bran says, I'm not a cripple. And then Tyrion says, well, then I'm not a dwarf. My lord father will be overjoyed. You know, just more clever little one-liners from Tyrion that just are absolute gold. And that ultimately kind of leads us into where we end this episode, which is where Tyrion, after deciding to forego Rob's invitation to stay in Winterfell, decides to ride directly south, arrives at a tavern roughly set just south of the Neck. Ultimately, it just so happens to be the same tavern that Catelyn Stark is staying in on her way back from King's Landing. And Catelyn is ultimately able to rally the forces that are all sitting there who all happen to be loyal to her father, Hoster Tully, the liege lord of the Riverlands, and ultimately has Tyrion arrested, which closes off this very, I would say, even though kind of it feels relatively low stakes relatively high stakes and tense episode ultimately there are moments that feel like they're earned moments that feel like they're taken away but it ultimately feels like the characters are still going are still getting somewhere getting to a specific place yeah no i i feel like there's a lot of cool things that happen like you know sansa is sort of this is another peppering in of sort of the lineage of the kingdom like she's being told like what's going to happen with her and joffrey and their kids and who's going to take over but that leads into a conversation about the mad king and what happened to her sort of family right there in the throne room and so we get the peppering in of the past uh we also get Things like um, when Stark's messenger goes uh, to give Robert a message, uh, Jamie is sitting there and inside Robert is with several horrors. Um, and basically this is Jamie's punishment. He insults his sister why uh, he makes Jamie sort of listen. And so there's a lot of this peppering in of the small details uh, that really help with the, you know, reinforce the motivations of a lot of the different characters. Yeah, definitely. It's a, it's a, it's kind of. I'd say that this is kind of really the first episode where we kind of take a step back from the plot, and it really lets the little intricacies of the characters start to make their statements. Right. I, I, I think there are a couple more also original scenes in this episode that were not, you know, found in the in the novels. Definitely one scene that I can think of is the second to last scene when Cersei comes to visit Ned in a way to kind of like warn him off slash kind of try and continue to get him to leave and go back to Winterfell. Um, which is where she kind of says, oh, you're only a soldier. You only act one way, you know, because Ned is very cold, obviously, to her and very, very one note. But they also just throw off kind of thinly veiled threats at each other, continuing to build up their rivalry, which also, again, just continues to give us these little moments in context that continue to set up for events to come and also, you know, flesh out the characters thematically as, as far as that goes, you know. And speaking of characters, 
most definitely. So it's it's really weird because I I I could have sworn I remembered this character having more of an impact in this episode than I originally than when I originally remembered. Obviously, he's a character who I don't know. Based on reading the books, it definitely felt like this was a guy who okay, if there was ever one guy that was going to survive all of this and actually have a chance of taking it over, it would be this guy. And then the show kind of came along and ultimately kind of. Went away with that by just making him ultimately just outsmarted. Just they they kind of had him fall victim to the classic HBO trap of oh the student has surpassed the master as far as that goes. That is Peter Littlefinger Baelish portrayed for seven by of the eight seasons by Aiden Gillen, fantastic actor. He just recently was on Those Who Wish Me Dead on HBO Max, which he was fantastic on. Pat, what are your thoughts on Littlefinger as a character? Um, I will say that he has two fantastic moments in this episode. One is when Ned is sort of getting information about John Aaron and what he was looking on. Basically, Ned tells him, you know, I, I didn't trust you at first uh, when I arrived, you know, and uh, his response is, that's the smartest thing. You know, trusting me is the smartest thing you did since you got off your horse in King's Landing. And, you know, I think that really says a lot about how Littlefinger plays the game. He's very open. He's sort of very honest, but he's also very secretive and cunning. And he he basically knows how to play both sides. It's about charming everybody, but at the same time, letting them know that, you know, he's he's only a temporarily ally uh, at any given moment. And so uh, I think that just like is a lot of characterization for Littlefinger right off the bat. And it's it's done so well. It's done uh, perfectly by, uh, you know, by the actor. And, uh, you know, it's it's just fantastic. And the other one is that story that he tells Sansa about the mountain. You know, obviously he's telling this story, this gruesome story, and it really is serving the purpose of hyping up the mountain, right? We're seeing this joust. We're seeing this bloody death that takes place. And to really show the mountain as a ruthless killer, we basically need this backstory of putting the hound in the fire. But at the same time, it's very subtle, but he is uh, sort of getting Sansa attached to him. Like it, it's almost like, hey, I'm going to tell you these scary stories, but I'm Set almost going to later on. Yeah, but it's like I'm going to tell you how things really are. And so when, you know, things sort of go sideways for the Starks in uh, a couple more episodes, basically Sansa more and more relies on Littlefinger as the seasons go on. And it all starts and we can see just him peppering it in there, doing the manipulation. And on this second watch, it, it's sort of, um, again, very fantastic to just see how far this character will go uh, with his uh, long-term plans. I, th I think a very interesting point that I remember that was brought up by Martin, obviously, when talking about this character is the one thing that he said that was like a little bit of a difference between the little finger in the, in the show versus the little finger in his books is that he said that there, there were a couple lines that were dropped in the show about, you know, the idea of certain people mistrusting Littlefinger, you know, the idea of certain people knowing, you know, never trust Littlefinger, never get in bed with him. But Martin has made explicitly clear that his Littlefinger, the Littlefinger in the books, the whole genius of the character is that because nobody knows his allegiance and everyone thinks that he's nice, you know, everyone gets along with Littlefinger. Everyone kind of wants him. Everyone needs him for something. He has made himself the ultimate kind of craftsperson kind of like center of need as far as the kingdoms go, you know, when he continues to position himself to always be in vital roles in order to help 
you know, certain people gain attention, you know, in certain moments, the Baratheons and others, the Starks. Later on, obviously, the Lannisters are his advantage. And later on, when he starts mechanizing with the with with the uh, with the Arons and the Boltons and later in his takeover of the Eyrie, ultimately. And it kind of his sort of meddling all over kind of was a big, a large part of like what led into the unifying process of Westeros with it throughout the rest of the show, definitely. So he is an important character, to say the least, even if he does meet a tragic end. But I guess kind of the whole appeal of Littlefinger as a character is he's kind of the idea of, you know, a scrappy youth working his way up to be a lord. You know, he's kind of the only person, at least at this time period, that hasn't inherited his titles, per se. He's kind of worked his way up and just become the liege lord of this scrappy, you know, bit of grey land, who eventually, throughout the course of the series, earns himself the title of the Lord of Harrenhal and the Lord of the Eyrie, you know, through sheer, like, craftiness and cunning alone. Like, that is how experienced this guy is of a liar and a manipulator, you know? In a weird way, he's the perfect person to, you know, to kind of show Ned Stark the way, as far as, you know, how things really work in King's Landing, just as easily as it is to believe that he's the guy to betray Ned Stark when the trips are down obviously in episode seven well i would say that Littlefinger. another great part of this particular episode is that council meeting right when they're talking about the everyone's in the jazz there's not enough guards the crime is on the rise we need more men ned is like okay you already paid for the joust uh, clearly losing the battle with robert over spending money so let's pay for the guards. Uh, Ned also, you know, offers, uh, I believe, like 20 or so of his own personal men to reinforce the uh, city guard. And one of the things that Littlefinger says in that scene is sort of all the inns are full. And um, I believe he says the whores are walking bow legged. Yeah. And this is the sort of a, a you know callback to the fact that he owns uh, several of those bordellos. And that he profits on them. And so just that little line of him being uh, very crude and uh, straightforward about how he's profiting uh, in during this joust, I think that's one of the signs that makes everybody comfortable with him. Because everyone thinks as long as he's running these businesses, he's getting the gold, you know, that's – and anything that he does is to support those businesses. Uh, people don't really necessarily – connect his his really bigger goal of sitting on the throne or, or obtaining power uh they really just see him as a, a greedy uh you know successful businessman of of these times yeah and so i think no yeah yeah no i was just gonna say i think that's what ties into what you're talking about why he's trusted why uh he sort of plays that role of helping people out is because people feel like it's transactional like oh He'll benefit financially. We'll get something that we really need to cement power. He's a man of means, definitely, and he's a man of will, per se. And like I said, even he kind of factors into this little title, obviously, because while he's not necessarily any one of the three things that are in this title, he's still a man who has kind of achieved something with seemingly very little, obviously. And that obviously, you know, kind of we see this continue on, you know, this theme of like kind of earning above what is your social class, definitely. We see that with Arya, obviously, trying to go something outside of, you know, with, she doesn't get as much to do in this episode, but she has this one little cool moment with Ned where she, where, you know, Ned kind of tells her what her faith 
fate is going to be what her fate is going to be and she's kind of like you know does the you know the, that's not me and then obviously we see with john obviously becoming a mentor quicker than we thought he was going to right obviously after having to say goodbye to uncle benjamin last episode and now he's seemingly got somebody new to take care of at the night's watch but he realizes it's somebody who could strongly benefit if he's given the right leadership definitely to work with and finally with brand obviously who while still a long way to go before he finally actually begins to you know do something at the very least he's got that glimmer of hope right now as far as okay my life isn't just going to be lying around in this bed and having to be carried around in order to do something you know yeah and, and brand is just a, a the three-eyed raven tease right it it's like cacao or whatever the hell that's the bird makes it. and, like, that's, the beginning. And, it's like, <laughs> and oh, that's, so that's what it is that that's what get, that's what gives way to three seasons straight of just walking yeah, that's all we get. And so, uh, yeah, okay. The story could have been fleshed out a little bit better, yes. But um, I think the mystery, the sort of seeing these visions and, and slowly getting into it, uh, we're starting to see that with this one image. Uh, we're probably going to get some next episode, and we're just, just going to keep on going. So uh, I look forward. You know, Brand's storyline is always a good one uh, until you realize that, that quite not. frankly – it didn't go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I love when you bring up sarcastic points like that. It's just fantastic. Ultimately. All right. So uh, tell me about really, the bastards, man. Yes, you, that's you, really you, all you... that we can say about Littlefinger as far as our focus <laughs> character segment. But right now we're going to move on to the gotcha verse segment where we're talking about the elements of Westeros and the overall kind of areas around it and different lores and cultures. Today we're talking about the idea of bastards. Bastards are kids people just in general who are born out of wedlock typically usually there are different classes of bastards usually you know you just have low low-born bastards who are just like you know just when common people just have sex outside of their you know clearly unhappily marriage <coughs> then you have like kind of mid-level uh, dom I don't, I don't know if there's clear evidence of that in this show this is true this is true I agree it, it's it just happens but the most common <laughs> reference to bastards within the show and within this universe is really with children that high lords have out of wedlock because if there's one thing that we have learned in game of thrones it is that high lords are not nearly as kind of celibate as they're kind of supposed to be once they you know take their marriage vows they usually in the case especially in the case of robert baratheon they usually have affairs outside of their marriage sometimes children from before they became lords ultimately from some of their earlier dalliances and ultimately obviously we have the most famous bastard on the show john snow who is of course later revealed to be not a bastard but the interesting thing right is that bastards can still kind of make their way up and achieve seats of power. Obviously, John cho chose to do it outside of his family, but later on, we obviously see with the aptly titled Ramsey Snow, later on, to, you know, christen Ramsey Bolton, and he eventually takes over as Lord of Winterfell, or in this case, you know, Lord of House Bolton from his dad, definitely. The way that the correlation line works is that even though bastards can sometimes be raised with royal families to which they are to whom they are born, they will never possess the same last name. It said bastards, specifically that of royal households, are given um, different last names from their families in order to kind of all group them together and differentiate them as bastards, you know, kind of like a naming classifying system, you know? So, for example, a bastard born in the north gets the last name of Snow. The Erie, Stone, Riverlands, Rivers, the Westerlands, Hill, the Iron Islands, Pike, the Stormlands, Storm, the Crownlands, Waters, Reach, the Reach, Flowers and Dorn Sand, ultimately. Bastards are obviously kind of treated differently, like, in different cultures, depending on where we go, obviously. And Dorn Bastards are completely raised, despite the la 
last name difference are raised as part of the family and are never made to feel at all different. Obviously, you know, different people kind of reject different bastards. Some bastards aren't even aware that there are royal lineages. You know, the royalty in this case doesn't even isn't even aware that they're around. You know, some bastards are taken in and raised by their royal family ultimately. You know, so it's kind of a different case, kind of a pick or choose. You know, it's, so it's not everyone that chooses to go the route of the wall ultimately. But it's but I always found it fascinating, kind of this idea of. It's one of those things where it's not the worst thing in the world, but it's also like they're always kind of seemingly reminded of their place, which is a little bit of an interesting conundrum. And I, and I just wanted to know if you like have really had anything to kind of weigh in on that as far as that goes. No, I, you know, I think in the Game of Thrones universe, it's, it's kind of um, interesting that it, it's open, like almost if, if you have some sort of bastard child in this universe, like, and you make it publicly known and you sort of set them aside, like the rest of the family's you know are okay with it you know what i mean like it's like okay well they're not going to inherit the title we know the lineage of this sort of uh you know bastard child um okay that's fine don't worry about it you know it, it seems very cavalier uh that the way that the kingdoms are set up is to sort of integrate them into the families um you know obviously some get treated better than others uh in terms of that integration but it's 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 a it's a very interesting dynamic that uh, we get to sort of live with as the show goes on. Yeah, and like I, like you said, it's definitely interesting kind of seeing how different family members treat them. Obviously, you know, John obviously, with the exception of Cat, was loved and respected by every single member of the Starks. You know, Arya looks up at him as his big brother. You know, Rob sees him as an equal ultimately, and so that's kind of interesting viewing the difference between him versus someone like Gendry, who at that time doesn't even know that he's a bastard, doesn't even know his royal lineage. You know, the only reason why is because John Aaron is going around to investigate. You know, all of Robert's bastards, who is is revealed. In the second season premiere, when we see, obviously, has Robert has 14 bastards, known bastards, throughout the city. You know, Robert Baratheon, obviously, a man of large appetites all around, to say the least. <coughs> uh, Gendry is not even aware of his parentage and lineage, you know, and only views himself as kind of a lowborn, you know. But technically, he is all on the same level as John, as we later come to find out. So it's interesting to kind of see the parallels, definitely. And it's interesting, kind of like, the, I guess, the continued raging hypocrisy of... The, of the kingdoms of Westeros as far as, oh, certain people are lowborn, but obviously if you still have that reach and influence and extent, that's clearly what matters. It's always interesting to me how that works as far as like kind of the ancient timelines go of maintaining such order and such chaos at the same time. Yeah. Uh, you know, hey, listen, <laughs> it, it's it, the one thing that's interesting is that like Robert's bastards are the ones that are hidden, yes. the ones that no one talks about. Yes. And it's it's almost like the king. Yeah, that's more of what you sort of expect. Uh, you know, from uh, and, and we're first sort of getting introduced to that concept in episode four, whereas before it's like, you know, uh, it's sort of commonplace to, you know, have your your bastard children alongside your regular children and they're just integrated into the family. Uh, same thing with uh, the Theon Greyjoy, right? This episode, uh, he has a little moment with Tyrion and yes. Tyrion is basically like, just oh, ripping you're, him a new one. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're sort of in love with your captors, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, and he, Theon like, doesn't so see the, it that way. The thing way. I'll say about that is that moment, I think, is a little bit forced. That that moment, like, that's totally, con like, uncharacteristic of Tyrion as far as that goes. Like, he, there's kind of, like, no reason for him to hate Theon other than, like, kind of the reason that they just give him as far as the insert there. But, like, that doesn't feel natural. It kind of comes out of nowhere. It feels like only, like, something to just, like, kind of spark Theon on his journey that he'll later go on. Yeah, I think it... it um you know, if anything, for Tyrion, it's sort of one of those things where 
Rob just kind of gave him a, a verbal uh, lashing. And so he goes outside and he's ready to leave. And he basically just, you know, displaced anger. He just kind of gives one to uh, Theon. And, um, you know, I, the forced part with the whole, you know, Roz, the uh, yeah. basically the girl at the inn that Theon likes, you know, Very that <laughs> that part was definitely a little bit of a forced, uh, yes. you know, writing situation. Forced entry, um, if you know what I mean. Uh, that's that's a crude joke, uh, Dom, and uh, you know I I, I will uh, chastise you off air for that. Uh, no good. <laughs> um, anyway, so uh, yeah, I don't know any any more things to say about the bastards of, uh, of not the really. World. Ultimately, they, they get they get a sore lot, but they ultimately can come to a place of high prominence. Definitely. So, with that being said. Uh, you, do you want to get into the death count? Do you want? Do, do, do you remember off the top of your head how many right. people died in this episode? The, I, only the one, right? He had the yeah. wood in his throat. Sir man. Hugh of the Vale with the wood in his throat. That is the only – he is the only person <laughs> who has died. Yeah, I don't know. The, this, the, I already figured out the death count. What are we up to? Like, Are we uh, even right. at, I, I, at, I am not doing a good job of overall counting. I know it was four in the first episode. It was, I think, three in the second there were none last episodes. That puts us up to eight overall so far. Eight deaths so far. On Interesting. Screen. Yeah, we're probably wrong. So let us know in the comments <laughs> how wrong we are. Or maybe we're actually how many correct. People have died so far in the first four episodes of this show, definitely. So uh, in order to wrap up this episode, of course, we have a few comments from our favorite commenter, Mr. Eric Thorpe of Eric Thorpe Reviews. Yeah, he's um, all over it. Yeah, oh yeah, he's he's literally our only fan, but I'm glad that we have someone. He says, do you believe the theory that Tyrion is a bastard, that his father is the Mad King, his mother died also while giving birth to him as Jon did, since that's a common thing. And also, obviously, he mentioned that Daenerys' mom also died giving birth to her. So definitely interesting, kind of having the origin of, like, those three characters, with all three of their mothers dying to give birth to them, definitely. But, like, did you hear about that theory at all? Were you, like, kind of into it as far as that goes? No, but it would add to the whole idea that the prisoner gets to decide how the kingdom changes in the end of the series. Yeah. Not only that, but he's uh, he's not actually who he says he is. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's like, oh, I just tricked you all. I am not Tyrion Lannister. I am instead Tywin Hill. And it's like, what? <laughs> like, like and, and then it's like, oh, I'm since I'm not Tyrion Lannister, I could like yeah, I, in this. I, I think I think that conspiracy might be a little too much for me, right? You know, it's. It's just the idea that um, none of these characters are who they actually are presented to be. Uh, I, I think it's unnecessary story-wise. Yeah, I agree, ultimately. So, yeah. Eric, Don't read too much into that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, with that being said, Pat, final thoughts on this episode? Um, I don't know. You know, listen, I, I thought the episode was definitely watchable. It it's gave me a little glimpse into the backstory. Um, but ultimately I'm, I'm just, I'm really ready for, uh, those bangers that, you know, I know this show is used yes. to, hopefully, it's, hopefully this will be the last of the slow episodes before things finally start to pick up next episode. Yeah. I think, I think it's one of those things where, um, the show definitely is a roller coaster, like, uh, any television program. And I think, you know, you're talking about a period piece, which they nailed it, yes. right? There's a couple of moments like when you're watching the wall and you see people like sadly sword playing in the background that doesn't yeah. look real at all yeah. uh it's like you kind of like ignore that part but for the most part like the period piece 
it's really well, uh, you know, set dressed. It's really well written. Like I think the scenes, which give us more of the attitude of the world, uh, they're peppered in there throughout the first couple episodes. Uh, but the show really starts taking it to the next level. And once it gets to that level, it keeps going and going and going. And I think, you know, start off slow for sure. But, um, you know, again, first time I watched the show and the second time I'm watching the show now, it's like I'm at the point where I'm ready to go. Yeah. Show me something or I got to go watch the great British, great Bake, British Off. Bake Off. I was waiting for that <laughs> to be dropped. Yeah. No, it, that, there's definitely something to be said as far as the binge quality factor of the show. And I like kind of how that lets the first couple of episodes of each season kind of zoom by quicker. Ultimately, I think there's only yeah. like a couple of episodes, a couple of seasons that really break apart from well, that school, it, as far as that goes. Eric likes the slow burn. <laughs> he just said so in the comments. Uh, and I agree. I, I like the slow burn as well. Uh, but, you know, I think it's one of those things where I'm, you know, I'm ready to go. In a TV show, I, I'm, you know, I don't, I don't want to sit around. Uh, also, like when I was growing up, it, it was basically like 23 episode seasons. Yeah, You had to wait like a whole entire year to see all 23. And it, it just dragged on and on and on. Yep. They're great episodes. Um, but like West in much? Oh, West Wing is, uh, yeah, fantastically long episodes, but, uh, they're all good. Uh, but the, <laughs> for the most part, I, I'm just going to say that it's one of those things where we're 10 episodes. We want them to be tight. We want them to be awesome all the time. Yes. Um, you know, at least I do. And I can agree with, you know, it doesn't have to be hit over the head, violent, 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 action, action, action. Right. All um, the time. But there's there's so many there's going to be so many scenes that we come across as we rewatch this that it's like, you know, this small scene uh, is tightly written, well acted, perfectly placed at the show. Like right now, we're just getting the setup. You know, and it's a lot of information. It's a lot of awesome stuff. Um, but there are so many slow burn scenes later on that are key and like really get you to think and I, I can't wait till we uh, stumble across those yes indeed ultimately it's going to be a fascinating run as we continue to go on and ultimately at the end of the day cripples bastards and broken things i think while a more character and subliminal episode i think it offered some interesting and kind of you know forward moving tidbits as far as you know continuing to flesh out the world while continuing to get us deeper and deeper into this story ultimately so with that being said people that is the end of our fourth episode of talking thrones a little bit of a shorter episode today but we hope to continue to give you guys this type of content each and every single week be sure to tune in next weekend definitely for episode five that being entitled episode five the wolf and the lion it's going to be a banger episode as always people and once again continue to stay tuned into everything that is going on on the talking tv channel we've got more fast and furious first time watches coming this week we've got more variety hours we're back with our summer movie binge on our main podcast series we've got all this stuff and more coming to you all throughout the rest of the year professor pat where can the good people find you on the social media brands and programs? well you could jump on the talking tv youtube channel and just see how miserable i was watching spiral with these guys <laughs> uh I, quite frankly um you know hey my first saw movie was uh not so great of an experience but yeah. uh Again, I say this every time, but uh, on Instagram at Patrick W Huber H U B E R R S said that pretty quickly. But uh, I'll post something someday. That that is the promise I give to everybody. Yep, sounds 
good ultimately i'm still waiting to see that new stuff from you pat ultimately i might just have to hit you up for another photo shoot when i come back to visit ultimately just in order to like get you to actually take some pictures that i will actually see and you could of course follow me on facebook and instagram at the talking tv podcast which is where i post literally every single day twice a day in order to continue to give you guys the content that it is that you deserve and you can also follow my own personal pages at face on facebook and instagram at movie nerd reviews all one word i make sarcastic posts i make you know quick you know overall thoughts on movie posts i call i kind of call them like my pre-letterbox posts also for any letterbox fans out there follow me on letterbox at movie nerd reviews as well it's kind of you know the outlet that i use as far as like my own personal movie writing thoughts as far as that goes and uh, for myself from pat that was another episode of talking thrones we'll be back next week 12 seasons in a short film and watch more fucking movies we'll see you guys next time